Hello and welcome to 80s, a decade of crime. We'll be diving into crimes that shaped the 80s. We'll be focusing on well-publicized cases and cases that had minimal media attention. This is our first episode, The Charles Stewart Murders. Let's take it back to Boston, 1989, where we're going to talk about, yes, The Charles Stewart Murderers. Now this guy, Charles Stewart, is not to be confused with Chuck Stewart, the hockey player. Um, his Wikipedia account was unfortunately linked to Charles Stewart, the murderer. Anyway, so our Charles Stewart was the general manager of Edward F. Kakas and Sons, Furs on Newberry Street. Now, he was big time into the fur business. Charles was, quote, basically family with the owners, and he was running the place like he was some sort of Boston fur mob boss. Um, allegedly, according to CelebrateBoston.com, one of the commenters said that she worked there and that he was pulling insurance scams on the side of managing and I guess you know somewhere along the line from storage to store to customer delivery things went wrong and he pocketed the cash. Now mink wasn't the only thing that Charles was trying to get his hands on at Cagas and Sons. Apparently also he was after his co-worker Deborah Allen but we'll get to that. First we need to focus on Charles. He was a married man and his wife was Carol Diamati Stewart. Now she was on her way to change Boston and do some good for her community. Carol put herself through law school in Boston like most Americans by getting into a lot of debt and also working full-time as a waitress at a bar slash restaurant. Now the year after she graduated is when she met Charles who happened to be the dishwasher slash assistant chef at the restaurant she worked at. Boom, fast forward to 1989, Charles and Carol are well on track with life. They moved into a nice neighborhood, they got a nice house, and boom, beginning in 1989, Carol is pregnant. They got their first kid on the way. This was all part of their five-year plan that they had. You know, this is where Charles wanted out. So this is where the chaos begins. And, you know, instead of owning up to it and getting a divorce or just going out for a pack of cigarettes and never coming back, um, Charles started to cook up another one of his schemes while having his wife killed. So Charles started talking, expressing that he wanted his wife dead and if anyone knew how to get it done. So obviously no one took this seriously because we wouldn't be covering the story. And seven and a half months later, his new plan was ready to execute. All right. I've noticed that from all of the articles and different stories I read about this, everything was a little jumpy on the timeline of this big ordeal and try to go through it chronologically on how everything was revealed initially so that I can dive into specific details later. All right. All right. So let's start. October 23rd, 1989. The night. Now this night, the night, uh, Carol and Charles were on their way home from a Lamaze class. Wonderful. Uh, this is at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Now, while driving through Roxbury, uh, apparently at a stoplight, a man forcefully entered their, car, their vehicle. Carol was shot in the head, and Charles was shot in the stomach. After the robber left the car, Charles proceeded to speed off and call 911 on his car phone. That's pretty cool. He had a car phone. He begged and pleaded for help. It's kind of stalled, it seems. Before he did reveal their location, he apparently passed out from his injuries. Eventually, figuring out where they were, help was on the way. And as it happens, the crew of 
The CBS show Rescue 911 at the time was rolling with the response team that night. Now you can find some intense footage online of the show and that they covered this incident. Uh, the paramedics were pulling a pregnant Carol from the car and Charles was disoriented, trying to find his words. After they were rushed to the hospital, the surgeons were unfortunately unable to save Carol from her injuries. Uh, they did try to save the child though. They did an emergency C-section, deliver the child, and it was two months early at this time. They named him Christopher. Unfortunately, 17 days later, he did pass away from complications. I think it was breathing complications. It's honestly the saddest part of the story. The little kid died too. It's really, it's really messed up. Now, continuing off this night, Charles spent weeks in the hospital and went through multiple surgeries. He even missed his own wife's funeral. It was only four days after the incident is when they held the funeral for Carol. He did send a heartwarming message to be read, though, at her funeral. This is what it said, quote, Now you sleep away from me. I will never know again the, the feeling of your hand in mine. But I'll always feel you. I miss you and I love you. In our souls, we must forgive this sinner because God would. End quote. So touching. You know, can't be there, but you know, he's in there in spirit. Anyway, so during that night, Charles gave a description of his attacker to the police. The description being a tall black man with a raspy voice wearing a tracksuit. It's so specific because, you know, in the 80s, I mean, <laughs> everyone was wearing a tracksuit. And I feel like everyone's already kind of tall. Everyone's tall and wearing a tracksuit. That's, I mean, literally everybody. So, going on, that's what happened. They got robbed at gunpoint. Carol was shot, murdered. He got shot in the stomach. He ran away. He took off. Boom. The description is a tall black man in a tracksuit. So because of that, because of his super vague description, things got a hand, out of hand really quick. So the police basically infiltrated the Mission Hill community, and hundreds of officers were dispatched and searched for the killer. The uh, black community of Mission Hill was literally stripped naked by hundreds of officers, so the police really went out of control with their patent frisk privilege, which has always been an issue. Obviously, the community was outraged, and the city and police faced immediate backlash. This is where things skyrocketed. News headlines soared, people were protesting in the streets, things really started to heat up. Everyone's, I mean, it's like right now. I mean, that's why I wanted to cover this because, you know, there's communities of people being, you know, persecuted overall just because of a fake description. It was only after about four days, the police found their first suspect, our suspect, Alan Swanson. In most articles, I didn't hear anything about Alan Swanson, but he did seem kind of important because he was the first suspect that they found. Now, he was a homeless man who was squatting in the apartment building near where Charles' car was found. And he just happened to have a old sweatsuit in the corner, you know, tracksuit just over there, just in there, you know, whatever. I'm sure every homeless guy has a tracksuit in the corner of his stuff. So he was arrested and he was held, but the hunt didn't stop there. Police continued to comb the streets for suspect and it wasn't until November 20th, almost a full month into the a full month after that night, the community of Mission Hill just being absolutely humiliated, harassed constantly for almost a month is uh, when Alan Swanson was 
he was held in prison for really almost well not in jail for nothing really just being a suspect and he was held there until november 20th until they found a new suspect by the name of william bennett now willie wasn't perfect uh he did have a very extensive criminal record and even according to him in an interview i read uh he knew he was like the guy the police wanted you know he was like oh yeah this is he fit the description he knew he's like well dang this is what's gonna happen even so uh willie was picked out of a lineup by charles they lined him up and charles picked him out of the lineup so apparently they found their guy they got him now they were kind of holding him in there didn't have much evidence except for that charles picked him out of a lineup and they're like we got our guy we have our tall black dude with a raspy voice that had a tracksuit that's really all they got in this case now fast forward to january 3rd 1990 sorry we're in the 90s now it's been willie has been in prison not in prison jail i keep saying prison anyway he's been in jail since november 20th when he was arrested one of charles's brother matt matthew stewart he had three brothers charles did he came to the police with some new information now matthew said that he told the police that the whole thing was staged and that he helped charles set up what he believed at the time was to be a jewelry insurance scam and it turned out that charles's true intention was a life insurance scam so the police figured that out. Matt came forward with that information. That was January 3rd. Willie's been in jail for over a month for literally nothing. And the brother was just like, you know what? I had enough of this. He came forward and said the whole thing was a scam. Now, upon hearing that on January 4th, Charles, after learning that his brother turned him into the police, Charles, before the cops get him, could get him, jumped off the Tobin Bridge to his death. Now, why did he do this? Why did he come up with a scam, accuse a random tall black man? He said this in insinuating a racial war through the community and causing all sorts of insanity. Well, let's go back and figure out why he did it. So according to David F. McLean, a friend of Charles, uh, Charles told David that he was upset that Carol was pregnant and that she didn't want to get an abortion. Now, this guy's just mad his wife is pregnant. Okay, according to David F. McLean, a friend of Charles, Charles told David that he was upset that Carol was pregnant and that she didn't get an abortion. Now, he was also mad because Carol was planning on not returning to her law practice after she gave birth so she could raise the kid. Like, a, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> Being a lawyer and a mother, it sounds like a lot of work. So that would thus lower their overall income. And we know the mink slinging Charles is all about that money. But um, I read that Charles pulled in over $100,000 being in the fur business. I was like, come on, $100,000 back in the 80s slash early 90s? That was a lot of money. And just by selling fur, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. I should be selling fur coats. But Carol definitely had the upper hand. She was a lawyer. She had steady and even better pay than Charles. I can never figure out how much she made to David. It was just one person that Charles asked to help him kill Carol. He actually asked David if he would kill his wife for him. I mean, he was just going around talking to people, killing his wife. I don't know how he thought he would get away with this. 
Anyway, Charleston asked his brother Michael, um, who apparently refused. This was when Matthew, his other brother, his second brother, was roped into the quote jewelry scam in which he was offered 10 grand for his role. So Charles and Matthew, the night before or a couple nights before, Sainsbury's, um, don't know exactly, I guess they did a dry run, kind of going over where Matthew was supposed to meet them after the quote robbery and, you know, taking the money and everything. So the night of October 29th, Matthew met Charles in the practice spot. And to his surprise, Carol was fatally shot in the head. And that's when Charles then proceeded to shoot himself in the stomach to make it like a look, look like a real robbery. So, I mean, he was really going all out. He wanted to shoot himself too. So Matthew then took the gun, took the jewelry that he had in the car, and uh, he disposed of it in a nearby river, which was later found by police. And he just took off. So, you know, obviously Charles took advantage of the previous racial tension that was in Boston and made his cover story of being robbed by a black man. Now, obviously with the public eye being distracted by racism and police brutality, Charles got his insurance money. It's not exactly confirmed how much, but it was somewhere around $100,000. What was his master plan through all this? Like, what did he want to do? Well, like I said earlier, he was after Deborah Allen, his co-worker. That failed miserably because she denied any time interviews and stuff like that, that she was at all romantically involved with Charles. She didn't, she claimed to not even really know him. She's like, this is ridiculous. And um, I'm not quoting that, but that failed terribly. That did not work out. His love for Deborah Allen was not even real. And that was just, I think, a little dream in his head. Like, oh, I'm going to run away and kill my wife and run off with my coworker, Deborah. Anyway, so she denied any sort of romantic involvement with Charles, and he, what he did with some of his money was buy a Nissan Maxima, buy it with cash, you know, of all things to buy right away. I'm just going to buy a Nissan Maxima with my $100,000. So everything seemed to be working out with Charles. Multiple friends and family members knew that Charles killed Carol and didn't say a damn word. They didn't say a word. Basically, his whole family knew what was going on. They covered this up. I don't know. I mean, so Matthew, against his family's wishes, went to the police to tell the truth. So they were mad at Matthew for going to the police to tell them what actually happened. Like his family was distraught. That was the whole scheme. It was just all a plan just to get some insurance money and get rid of his wife. Now, January 5th and beyond, after he was killed himself and they figured out who the murderer was, they let Willie go and kind of had the whole thing, you know, wrapped up, it seems. Everything should stop. But the repercussions of this case were very apparent in a lot of articles and kind of detailing the racial tension of this time and kind of had, there's a lot of articles still on how it's affecting Boston to this day. And so even after 30 years, we still face the same issues in communities really all across America. This whole thing, uh, the Patton Frisk, policy was highly overviewed and scrutinized because of this case and the Boston police uh, changed that sort of also some good stuff that came out of this kind of was uh, Carol's family set up the Carol Diamati Stewart Foundation which for 25 years has helped the students of Mission Hill High School find and afford college so despite everything Charles tried to stop Carol ended up changing 
her community even in death and helping hundreds of kids have a future and even when her own hers and her own sons was lost it's super sad you know i think that's really important this whole episode because i mean that was a lot of information you know carol seemed like to be a really cool person I was kind of rooting for her. She was going to be a lawyer. She was going to have a kid. She was going to do some cool stuff. And she was just trying to live that good life. And then Charles all of a sudden just turned into a murderer. I don't know what exactly compelled him to really go out and do that. Like cook up this scheme where he's going to fake his wife's death and murder her and just take off, you know, with his coworker and $100,000 and do something else. I was like, that's just ridiculous. He didn't really have a history of, you know, being insane, but maybe he did. Maybe that says something else his family covered up and never talked about. Thanks so much for listening, guys, to the 80s decade of crime. Um, if you like this episode, please give us a five-star like and subscribe. If you're on Instagram, you can follow us at the 80s Crime Podcast for updates, images, and some behind-the-scenes about the cases that we we're covering. And for a list of all the resources, go to the episode notes or wherever you're tuned in and check those out. I'm your host, Luke Pacheco. This episode was written and recorded by myself and Zorai Hendry. Zorai Hendry also did the editing and produced 80s Decade of Crime. And our little soundtrack was composed by Kyle Hendry. <laughs>